It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Content warning, this episode contains discussion of murder and violence. We've been covering the JFK assassination for a few episodes and decided it was time to bring in another voice. The person we turned to was Fred Litwin. He has researched the case for years and we've been impressed with his work. We'll let him talk about his own background himself in a few minutes but we wanted to highlight the fact that we became aware of him through his work on Oliver Stone and Stone's movie, JFK. That 1991 film, as you may remember, told the story of New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. In the movie, which was of course directed by Oliver Stone, Garrison was portrayed as a noble character by actor Kevin Costner. He's a hero who dared to bring charges against businessman Clay Shaw in the JFK assassination. In reality, Garrison's investigation techniques were shoddy. Shaw was clearly innocent and ended up being fully acquitted. 
but Shaw's life was devastated by the reckless acts of Garrison. Now Stone is back with a new documentary series on the assassination, and Litwin has written a book about that series called Oliver Stone's Film Flam. In our conversation, we discuss Stone, and we ask Litwin about other matters as well. Is the so-called magic bullet that is in the National Archives actually the bullet recovered on the day of the assassination? What the heck happened to JFK's brain? We'll get Litwin's take on those and other issues. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet. And this is The JFK Assassination, a conversation with Fred Litwin. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, my name is Fred Litwin. I grew up in Montreal, uh, Canada. Um, basically, I ended up uh, in 1983 at the Beerock to go traveling around the world. So I came back and ended up with a job in New York City. I worked on Wall Street for a couple of years, and I became uh, vice president of sales for a small software company called Land Systems in New York, um, who were then sold to Intel Corporation. I worked nine years for Intel in Europe and in Asia, and then I retired uh, in 2000 and moved back to Canada. Uh, but basically what's interesting is my my interest in the JFK assassination started when I was 18 years old in 1975, um, and I watched the Geraldo Rivera show and saw the Zapruder film. And that started me on a quest to find out what really happened and of course, like most people, I was a conspiracy guy for many, many years until around 1990, 91, when I started to change and I ultimately became convinced that Oswald was the lone gunman. It's interesting. And since then, I've written three books and uh, Oliver Stone's Film Flam is my latest book. Uh, it, it's a terrific book that we recommend. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about who, uh, who this Oliver Stone is and why you decided to write a book about him? Well, Oliver Stone was one of the one of the great directors, 
producers in Hollywood. He made a number of really fantastic films. And in 1991, he came out with his epic film, JFK, and uh, about the JFK assassination. And unfortunately for that film, his protagonist was based on the career of Jim Garrison, who was the district attorney of New Orleans, who um, reinvestigated the assassination in 1967 to 1971. But in 1967, he indicted a gay man, Clay Shaw, for the for conspiracy to kill Kennedy. And it was all a sham. His whole investigation was a fraud. Uh, he had nothing. It took two years to go to trial. Shaw was acquitted. And then it took, uh, he was, Garrison went after him for perjury. And that took another two years to get rid of that. And by then, Shaw was a broken man. He eventually died of cancer. It was a <clears throat> that was really, really bad. But what made it worse was Oliver Stone decided to to sort of he, he re he re victimized Clay Shaw, and that was the real problem. And so, uh, you know, I discussed that in my first book. I wrote a whole book about him. My second book um, called "On the Trail of Delusion: Jim Garrison, the Great Accuser." And uh, last year in 2021, um, at the end of 2021. Oliver Stone came up with a new documentary series called JFK Destiny Betrayed. Four hours documentary, and it's full of conspiracy nonsense. And I spent several months debunking it on my blog. One thing that's interesting to me is I was around back in 91 when the JFK movie came out. I remember it got a lot of publicity. And this documentary you mentioned came out last year, I guess. I didn't even know it existed. So that uh, perhaps there was less of a market for this sort of thing than there used to be. Yeah, it's very interesting. When, when, when Oliver Stone finished his new documentary series, of course, he wanted... Well, the whole world has changed now with, between films and streaming. You can't... Films don't have the quite the reach they used to have where you can have 1,500 theaters showing your film. But Oliver Stone went to Netflix uh, with his new documentary series, and they turned it down... Um, National Geographic turned it down, and uh, he told the press that the fact-checkers weren't pleased with um, with his documentary series. And ultimately, all he could find was Showtime in the States, and they aired um, the two-hour version of his documentary, which he renamed JFK Revisited. And that was it. So he didn't get, he didn't get very much play in the States, no theaters, and a second-tier streamer who, produced, who streamed the two-hour version. And so very few people have seen um, Stone's documentary series. I, I found it, you mentioned that in your book, that he conceded the reason it wasn't on a, a platform like Netflix was because of fact-checking. Was he basically but, admitting publicly that there are things in the documentary that weren't true? You would think that's what he's admitting. Uh, he's not saying it explicitly, but I think that's what he's admitting. And uh, he sort of obliquely said, well, you know, your normal fact-checkers aren't the right people to check this stuff out. You need sort of, I guess, special conspiracy fact-checkers to check it out, and then they would give you the okay. And this is the problem. is The documentary is full of all sorts of stories that just aren't true. Maybe the fact-checkers are CIA plants. <laughs> well, of course, yes, you know, and they've been doing that for years. <laughs> Uh, another thing you highlight is that you know Oliver Stone used to be this great filmmaker, 
But in recent years, he's had some dalliances with like the Russian press and things like that. Can you discuss that? Yeah, I mean, Oliver Stone you know, used to be able to make great first-run films. And as his career started to decline, um, he decided to make sort of documentaries um, on some of the great dictators around the world, from Fidel Castro to Hugo Chavez. He did a uh, 16-hour interview series with Vladimir Putin. He 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 did to uh, he went to Kazakhstan and did a documentary about Nazarbayev, who was an incredibly horrible dictator. And so he has these dalliances with with dictators, and that's his sort of new forte. He made a horrible film about Ukraine, um, in which he portrayed uh, the Ukrainians as Nazis and the Russians as the good guys. I'm curious. You mentioned um, that you yourself believed in some of the conspiracies early on. I know Kevin believed in some of the conspiracies over early on until he really looked into it. Um, and obviously Oliver Stone has been taken in by this stuff. Uh, do you have any insight on, on what draws people to that and maybe what differentiates people who get out of it versus people who stick with those conspiracy theories? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I believe there was a conspiracy and it was really based on I didn't believe the single bullet theory, which said that one bullet went through Kennedy and Connolly and emerged relatively unscathed. Um, but when I read the, um, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, they had a panel of 16 forensic pathologists. And when you read their forensic pathology report, it was pretty convincing as to um, why this is what really happened and there's actually no issue. Um, the problem here is that too many people read conspiracy books and they don't get out and read primary documents or any sort of uh, rebutting material that's out there. And so they just get into these bubbles where they think these stories are really true um, without realizing that when you look deeply look into it, it, it they're, they're, they're just nonsense. And unfortunately, Oliver Stone is very prone to believing what other people tell him. So he read Jim Garrison's book back in the late 1980s, and he thought it was a really good book. He loved it. And the same thing for his new documentary series. Um, his screenwriter is James Eugenio, and Oliver Stone really buys into uh, Mr. Eugenio's theories, book, line, and sinker, without realizing that a lot of them are very easy to, to debunk. It's, it's, it's sort of tragic. One thing that uh, Kevin and I recently, um, it was my first time watching stone's jfk film kevin had watched it before but he was looking at it with a more critical eye this time and i noted that when it comes to his portrayal of garrison it's very much this all-american you know family man hero uh he's played by kevin costner obviously very likable actor um and i'm curious you know one thing the film glossed over, my understanding, is some of Garrison's more dirty laundry as as far as his career and, and things he did in the JFK case and, and otherwise. Um, could you speak to that and maybe how some of Stone's, you know, film kind of almost becomes myth-making around the kind of person Garrison was? Yeah, Jim Garrison was, you know, he was 66 tall, he had a deep voice, he was very well-read, and he had a very, very good sense of humor. So he was the kind of guy that journalists could interview, and he would do very well um, in interviews. But when he got into power as a district attorney, 
he really uh, decided to uh, go after all the different people in New Orleans. He uh, went after the judges. He went after the police. He went after the legislature. He went after everybody with a variety of charges. And he, he really found that he can get a lot of headlines with a lot of baseless charges. And he'd actually get his way on a variety of issues. And, and he realized that his office had far more power um, than people realized. I'll give you one example of the kind of thing that he would do. He had the power of subpoena. He could subpoena you to go into the grand jury to testify. If you lived in New Orleans, you had to appear. Once you uh, were testifying before the grand jury, you were not allowed a lawyer, and you could not take the Fifth Amendment. And you had to answer his questions, and his favorite ploy was to then charge you with perjury. Once you were charged with perjury, which is a felony, you were not allowed to travel outside of New Orleans unless you got approval of the judge. And you had trouble getting a bank loan. It would affect your employment prospects. And he would push these people for testimony on a variety of other things. And if you were willing to go along, everything was okay. But typically, he would string you out until the trial would come, and then he would drop the charges. And so he realized the threat of bringing people before the grand jury would yield a lot of information and would get a lot of people extremely scared. And so he, he really understood how to use the office of the district attorney to scare people. Um, there's many, many more stories like that. Yeah, it's very interesting, uh, the, the, the whitewashing, for lack of a better word, that he did of uh, Jim Garrison. Uh, your book, your, your most recent book, does a great job of dissecting some of the lies or misstatements or distortions in the documentary that he did more recently. And I'd like to discuss some of those. Uh, of course, sure. the the commission that President Johnson uh, formed to investigate the assassination was known as the Warren Commission, and a man named Alan Dulles was installed on that commission. Uh, Alan Dulles uh, was the former head of the CIA, and a lot of conspiracy theorists believe that Lyndon Johnson was pressured to put Alan Dulles onto the commission for nefarious purposes to try to hide the CIA's involvement in the assassination of the president. Uh, and that's, some, that's something that uh, Stone repeats in this documentary. Uh, can you speak to that yeah. and to what the truth is? Yeah, so Alan Dulles is one of the boogeymen in the documentary series. Um, and they, they claim that the CIA pressured Johnson or lobbied Johnson to put Dulles on the commission. Um, the true fact is that Robert Kennedy wanted Alan Dulles to go on the Warren Commission. And in, and part of what Stone says is true. Al Dulles was there to sort of help keep a lid on some of the CIA secrets. Um, but it was the Kennedys, Robbie Kennedy, who wanted that. I mean, he wanted the lid to be kept on the assassination attempts. After all, this stuff was, was occurring during the Kennedy administration. So Stone has it half right, but he really misses the fact that um, it was Robbie Kennedy who wanted Dulles on the commission. What kind of things was Bobby Kennedy hoping to keep the lid on? Well, of course, they were trying to assassinate Castro. 
and they were involved in a whole variety of, of sabotage and, and a whole variety of programs to destabilize the Cuban regime. And, and of course, there was the dalliances of, of the CIA with the mafia. So all of that had to be kept under wraps. That would have really damaged uh, Kennedy and, and uh, both, both Robert and John, the legacy of John Kennedy. So that, that had to be under wraps. Um, and I think Dulles was there to sort of help try to do that. So, yeah, I, I find that fascinating that there is actually a reason beneath the surface for why Dulles was there, but the conspiracy theorists just miss it. Yes, and I think I, I think one of the things that conspiracy theorists miss is that, in fact, there there were there was a cover up after the assassination. The FBI was covering up the fact that they had destroyed a note by Oswald left at the office. Um, the the CIA was doing their covering up. Every agency was sort of covering their ass and covering up. And maybe perhaps because of all the covering up, it made it look like there was a conspiracy. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, FBI note. That, that uh, I believe, is when Oswald, uh, he was being followed. He was uh, assigned to an FBI agent named, I believe, James Hostie. 
Hosty. Yep. And he yep, Hosty. Yep. Hosty goes and speaks with uh, Oswald's wife, and uh, Oswald doesn't like it. So what happens there? So Oswald was greatly pissed off that Hosty was uh, a couple of times interviewed Marina Oswald. Marina Oswald had taken down his license plate number and his phone number. And so Oswald went down to the FBI headquarters in Dallas and left a note for Hosty, which I guess told him to stop, you know, to stop bothering my wife. There may have been some sort of threat there. And after the assassination, Hosty's boss, Gordon Shanklin, told him to destroy the note flush it down the toilet, which he did, and that was kept secret until the mid-1970s. And so the FBI was trying to, I guess, uh, cover up the note, maybe cover up the extent of their surveillance of Oswald, because maybe the implication would be, if you guys had been more on the ball, maybe you would have caught this guy before it happened. Yeah, maybe if they had been on more in the ball. I mean, uh, Hoover actually uh, reprimanded around 17 different agents for their work in the Kennedy assassination. Kept that quiet. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know whether that's true or not. But certainly, uh, you know, if, if they had really, if all the agencies had talked to each other and done a little more homework, they they might have uh, been a little more uh, careful about Oswald. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic to think about and ponder. Uh, another thing that's addressed in the documentary, of course, is the nature of the wounds. Uh, specifically, uh, I'm interested in the wound to the president's throat. Uh, and yeah. it's, it's very important to ascertain whether the wound to the throat is an entrance wound or an exit wound, because Oswald was behind the president and so if it was an entrance, right. if it's an entrance wound oswald can't f- hit him from the front if he's from the behind and initially one of the doctors who worked on kennedy at parkland hospital moments after the assassination uh, this doctor said that the throat wound was an entrance wound and later he changed his mind and said no it wasn't and so some people see something sinister about that. Can you uh, address that topic? Yeah, so Kennedy was wheeled into trauma room one, and uh, you had all these doctors and a couple of nurses in there, and they had to take off his clothes, and, and uh, they noticed a small bullet wound in his throat. Um, and Dr. Terry was one of the first doctors there and realized that he had to do a tracheotomy to get Kennedy to, to breathe. You make an incision in the neck and you insert a tube um, down his trachea to let him breathe. Um, Terry didn't even wipe off the blood from the wound. He immediately did the tracheotomy um, and inserted the tube. And so he didn't really spend that much time looking and examining the wound. He did notice that it was a small circular wound in the neck. And to him, um, it looked like an entrance wound. But they did not turn... Kennedy over. They did not turn. He was on his back, so they did not know that there was a bullet wound in Kennedy's back. So you know the reason we have autopsies is that you have to uh, you have to really examine the evidence to figure out what the wounds are, uh, because hospital physicians are not there to examine wounds. They're there to treat the patient and make sure the patient can live. 
And so, yeah, Dr. Perry immediately, or, or right after the assassination, thought it was an entrance wound. But once he found out that there was a wound in the back, he thought, well, it might be either. So there's nothing sinister there. There's no threats. There's no indication that he was pressured to change his opinion, is there? No, he said he wasn't pressured, and, and uh, there's really nothing to this. But, of course, people really want to believe it was an entrance wound. Of course, if it was an entrance wound, what happened to the bullet? Where did it go? Uh, nobody wants to answer that question, because then you'd really have a magic bullet. A bullet that would, would have disappeared. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, speaking of the magic bullet, uh, there's also a, a minor controversy among those who believe in conspiracies about the magic bullet itself. There's a, there's uh, claims that there's some chain of custody issues and that the, the so-called magic bullet that is in the archives is not the actual bullet that uh, was fired that day by Oswald. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is really interesting. So the documentary made a very, very big deal out of the fact that one of the FBI agents, Elmer Todd, his initials were not on the bullet. As you hand off the bullet to other people in the chain of custody, you put your initials on the bullet, you etch them in, and his initials were, uh, were not on the bullet. That was a very big part of the documentary. Well, one of my friends, Steve Rowe, who was a very good researcher, uh, wanted to look at some of the pictures of, of CE-399, the bullet, and he wanted to see if he could find the initials of Elmer Todd. And he emailed me. He thought he had found them. But I said, look, before you write something up about finding the initials, um, in 2016, the National Archives, in association with the National Institute of Science and Technology, released ultra-high-res pictures of the fragments and the, and the single bullet. And I said, you have to check these pictures before we know the truth. The problem is that when you want to look at those pictures, they're so big that you have to actually you have to stitch them together. It's a series of JPEGs, and it was beyond my computer capability. So I hired a consultant to come in to download all these photos, stitch them together. He put them on a terabyte hard drive, and I had them ship that hard drive to my friend Steve. And it took him a day to get the right viewer to even look at these pictures. And immediately he found Elmer Todd's initials. They're right there, quite noticeable. Um, and it, actually, it really floors me that the makers of this documentary series did not check the ultra-high-res pictures that were available to them. They accepted the word of, of a conspiracy theorist who was examining low-res pictures. I find that astounding. Have has anyone who who's made those allegations have they made any kind of response once they've been presented with the evidence that those initials actually are on the bullet? So we, we posted an article about the initials, and the initial response from James Diagenio, who's the screenwriter, was, "No, no, no, you're wrong. I've got eyewitnesses who have been to the archives, and they say that the initials are not there." Um, but then one of his own witnesses in his documentary, Dr. David Mantic, looked at our evidence and he actually admitted in an email, you guys are right. The initials are there. And when I went to the archives, I looked at the bullet, but I didn't even use a magnifying glass 
I just looked at the bullet with my eyes um, and saying, you guys are right. And since then, uh, James Eugenio has admitted that the Thelma uh, Todd's initials are there, although he's going to send one of his friends to the archives sometime this year to check it out for themselves. Yeah, so many of the conspiracy theorists' beliefs and positions are, are nebulous, and it's difficult to nail down the evidence that specifically disproves it. But this is an instance where anybody who has eyes can look at these high-res images and clearly see the initials on them. And we'll put the link to the pictures in our uh, show notes. Another one of the crazier theories you hear out there is that uh, they stole President Kennedy's brain or something mysterious and nefarious happened with JFK's brain as part of the cover-up of what happened. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this uh, this is another very big part of the documentary series. The the pictures of JFK's brain basically shows the right hemisphere of his brain was disrupted. That's where the bullet went through. His left hemisphere was completely intact. And that really supports a shot from behind, um, exiting the right front, uh, right side of his head. Um, And so this upsets a lot of the conspiracy theorists because if Kennedy was shot from the front, the left hemisphere of his brain would have been severely damaged, and it's not. So they have to make the case that the pictures of the brain um, are somehow illegitimate. Either the pictures are not the right pictures, or they substituted a new brain or something. But something's wrong with the pictures. And so they they have three or four different segments, which I've debunked all of them in my book. One is that the weight of Kennedy's brain was too heavy. Um, they weighed Kennedy's brain um, after the autopsy. They put it in, for, in formaldehyde. They let it set. And then you weighed it, you weighed 1,500 grams, which is well above a normal-sized brain. And so in the, in the documentary series, they ask, how is it possible his brain is, is smashed away and the brain is still heavier than a regular brain? And, of course, the answer is that putting the brain in formaldehyde adds weight. And, in fact, uh, many brains are quite heavier than 1,330 grams, which is the average. And so when you do the math of a brain that was not blown away but was disrupted, so it lost some mass, um, it gained mass maybe 20, 25% through the shrews being put in formaldehyde. So it's actually not unusual to have a brain weight of 1,500 grams. And they don't mention any of this in the documentary series. Um, so it's a complete red herring. Uh, one thing that when I, I, I used to believe in conspiracy theories about this case, and one thing that I always found somewhat compelling were there were stories and allegations that what happened in Dallas, it actually, there had been kind of dry runs for it earlier. That there was some sort of a yep. similar plot in Chicago or in Florida, uh, yep. presumably by the same people. Uh, can you talk about that and let us know what the truth is about those stories? Yeah, so the documentary series basically says that there, were a, there, were a, there was a prior plot in Chicago in early November and then later in November in Tampa. And then in both cities, there was a taxi similar to Lee Harvey Oswald who would have been arrested had Kennedy been assassinated. So I, I didn't really know that much about 
these supposed plots. But when I started to investigate, it really turned out that actually there's no evidence of a plot in either city. In Chicago, which was November 2nd, 1963, the only evidence of a plot comes from one Secret Service agent who had been dismissed from his job, and there's no documentary evidence to back him up in any way, shape, or manner. No other agent supports it. There's no document in support of a, of a supposed conspiracy. And I noticed that over the years, this agent, Abraham Bolden, his story has changed. Every time he tells it, he, he changes the story. And so there just isn't any credibility to a plot in Chicago. The same thing for Tampa. The, there's no evidence of a plot at all. Um, of course, there were threats against Kennedy. And the problem here is that the documentary doesn't distinguish between a threat by somebody who might be crazy or deranged, who might have said something, um, and an actual plot. And so there were a couple of threats against Kennedy in Tampa by two people who were basically mentally unhinged, and it really amounted to nothing. I'm wondering, you've done so much research on um, the work of Stone when it comes to the JFK case. Um, I'm... Do you, can you draw any conclusions for us on why a successful Hollywood director, I guess, has gone so much off the deep end on this subject? And, you know, I mean, one thing that strikes me is that it seems like a lot of his points with the JFK assassination is that, like, democracy was subverted um, by a conspiracy, essentially. Uh, but at the same time, he cozies up to strong men who are very anti-democracy around the world. So I'm just, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious on your take on the character of a, you know, a filmmaker who kind of seems to be doing both of those things. Right. Well, I think Oliver Stone was sung by criticism of the film JFK in 1991 and 1992. I think he really wanted to talk about Vietnam and the reasons why, why the United States went into Vietnam. And instead of talking about that, he was met with a, a, a whole mass of criticism about single bullets and the brain and, and Oswald and all the minutia of the assassination. And he spent almost all of 1992 defending his use of Jim Garrison and defending all the minutia and not really talking about Vietnam. And he was really stung badly by criticism in 1992. This was his way, I think, of getting back, of going back to all those people and saying, you know what, here it is, here's a documentary. I was right all along. It was a huge conspiracy. It was all about foreign policy. It was all about um, uh, the military-industrial complex being upset at Kennedy, you know, wanting to withdraw from Vietnam and usher in a new world of, of a new age of Aquarius uh, with peace and detente. And so I think that's why he did it. He wanted to get back and say, I was right all along. You guys were wrong. And it's unfortunate that he was snookered into this by a whole variety of newer, horrible conspiracy theories. Yeah, it's, it's, it certainly sounds, though, when you're, you know, when somebody's coming from the perspective of prove myself right rather than look for the truth, you definitely can kind of get snookered pretty easily if you had to if you had to like i guess speak to somebody who's currently very much enmeshed in a conspiracy theory around jfk what would you recommend that they do in order to maybe get some more accurate information on the case 
Well, when I first started in this case in 1975, I went to the library in Montreal, and the only book out there were, the only books were conspiracy books, like Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment. Anybody new into this can now go to the library, and there's a whole host of really good non-conspiracy books um, that you should read. Vincent Bugliosi's Reclaiming History, Gerald Posner's Case Closed, um, my books. There's some very, very good books out there, and they'll give you a very, very different perspective on what happened and how conspiracy theorists um, are misleading you. And so I really strongly recommend that people uh, go to the library and get out some of these other books. Uh, and I, I want to stress this was this is a terrific book you did. There's some great research there, and I would recommend it to all of our listeners. And we've barely scratched the surface. And I've not seen the documentary. I frankly don't intend to. The book is still very useful and very worth reading because it's almost like a catalog of different claims made by conspiracy theorists and then what the truth of those claims are. So it's it's a terrific job. Uh, we really enjoyed that book. We want to thank Fred for talking with us. You can buy his book, Oliver Stone's Film Flam, at Amazon. And you can find him online at onthetrailofdelusion.com. We'll link to all that in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.